Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. And good evening and welcome to Nature Folk with Selena Fox. Brought to us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Pagans Tonight Radio Network. Nature Folk with Selena Fox is a production of and a component of Circle Sanctuary's radio ministry program. Tonight's program is a rebroadcast from a December 2013 show as part of her earlier Circle Craft Studies program. In this program, Selena leads a discussion about the folklore and ritual uses of oak, mistletoe, holly, ivy, and other plants connected with Yuletide. And tonight, after Nature Folk, is a live presentation of Circle Craft's of Circle Talk, welcoming Jack Montgomery for a discussion on American shamanism and other topics. Enjoy. Good evening. Welcome to Circle Craft Study with Selena Fox. This is Selena Fox, and tonight we're going to explore sacred plants of winter solstice. When you think about winter solstice, what are some of the plants that come to mind? Evergreens, fir, pine, cedar, juniper, spruce are some of the evergreens that are associated with this holiday. But there are other plants as well. And we'll be exploring some of those plants tonight as well as we will look at some ways to use them for Yuletide celebrations. We call on the spirit of winter solstice. We call on the green spirit that is vegetation, that is green, and represents the continuity of life. We call on our memories of Yuletide past, Yuletide present, and Yuletide future. We celebrate winter solstice and the sacred plants that are part of winter solstice present, winter solstice past, and winter solstice future. There are different types of pagan yuletide greenery for winter solstice. Probably the most well-known is that of the yule tree. Now, some people call these trees that are brought into the home or living trees that are decorated outside the home and in other places yule trees, holiday trees, solstice trees, Christmas trees. They go by a variety of different names, but they all have their origins back in ancient times when evergreens were associated with the celebration of winter solstice. Yes, even before the winter solstice got intertwined with religious and secular Christmas. We have 
a Yule tree in our home every year. And at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve, we also have a Yule tree. And we have evergreens outside that we also work with in connection with the holidays. When did Yule trees start being decorated? When did they start being part of these holiday celebrations? Well, there are a lot of different viewpoints on that. Certainly there are accounts from ancient times of humans celebrating seasonal um, holidays around trees, decorating trees. But the custom that is widespread at winter solstice time and Christmas time really came into vogue during the middle 1800s, the Victorian era in England, when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert started popularizing the old custom of bringing a living, a cut tree that had been living into the home and decorating that. And what's wonderful today is that Yule trees, by whatever name they are called, are in many places now and they have become a focal point for many people's winter solstice, Christmas, New Year's celebration. There are different types of evergreens. Fir and spruce and pine are common ones that people use. Um, some people prefer to have a tree that's a symbolic tree, a created tree that um, isn't actually a tree that's been grown, but a tree that's been manufactured to serve as a Yuletide tree. As I was growing up, one of the um, ways that tree symbols came into being was aluminum trees, and now there's trees made of a variety of different materials. There's some debate about what is the greener alternative in terms of having a tree as part of a winter solstice celebration. And certainly there's something to be said about sustainable agriculture supporting farms that grow trees specifically for the purpose of being harvested and used in connection with the holiday celebrations each December up here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and so I'm inclined to see that actually working with supporting agriculture and tree farming and preserving green space in that way, especially when those that tree farming is engaged in sustainable practice, agricultural practice, is really a very good way to go. There's something also to be said, though, for having a tree that is manufactured tree, a tree symbol that's used year after year after year, as long as that tree continues to be in good shape and passed on and continues to be used. 
unfortunately, many of the artificial trees are only used a few years and then they end up in landfills and therefore that does add to um, some problems regarding um, that piece. But increasingly, people are paying attention to the environmental impact of the various plants that one uses in connection with holiday celebrations. What we do with our Yule trees when Yule Tide has passed is to have them outside as shelter for creatures and then after a time having them burned in a grand bonfire. So there's different ways of working with trees and tree traditions. Some other ways of connecting with sacred plants of winter solstice has to do with working with a wreath or a series of wreaths, having a evergreen wreath on the front door of a home, having them inside, working with both fresh wreaths as well as artificial wreaths that convey the spirit of the Yuletide, that wreath representing the wheel of the year, and having that being present around the home is a wonderful way to add to the beauty of holiday decorating. When you're talking about greenery, there's four different types. There's living, such as bringing in an actual living tree that has not been harvested. Um, one year we had a rosemary plant that had been um, shaped in the form of a tree. And we had that and then kept it and were able to use that as an herb after it stopped being a rosemary tree. Then there's the cut greenery that's kept fresh. This might be freshly cut holly that's put in a vase and kept fresh that way or some other plants that um, have been grown for the purpose and cut and kept as decorations. Then we have cut and dried. So the the greenery has been cut, such as a sprig of mistletoe, and then hung up fresh, and then it dries, and it's kept in that fashion, not only for Yuletide, but year-round. Then the representational, which is manufactured greenery, either that is put in a form to look like greenery or it symbolizes greenery. It might be made out of other kinds of materials and shapes and colors. Whatever forms that you choose to use, it's good to pay attention to why you're choosing that and to attend to your greenery and your other winter solstice plants throughout the season. I went to undergraduate school in Williamsburg, Virginia. It was at the College of William and Mary. 
if you get a chance to go to Williamsburg in December, you may find it to be a wonderful treat to travel back in time to the 1700s, um, early stage of America and Virginia, and look at all the decorations from um, for a winter solstice time and Christmas. Back in that era, it was very common to use greens and a variety of plants to celebrate the season. And those that care for the plants and the decorations in Colonial Williamsburg keep them fresh throughout a month-long celebration, replacing um, greens and other plant materials with fresh ones, and they use a lot of fresh greenery. It's really quite wonderful. Let's take a little look at some of the sacred uses of um, sacred plants of winter solstice. They're used to decorate a place. They are used in ceremony. They can be used in preparations of holiday feasting, such as some of the fruits. I make wassail every year, and in addition to spicing the cider, I put in freshly cut up apples to add to the taste as well as some frozen berries. So um, being able to use that as part of the feasting is a great thing. And another uh, possible use is that of gifts, of actually gifting others with one or more sacred plants of winter solstice. I'd like to spend a few moments now talking about some of the lore and some of the specific plants that are connected with this holiday. Frankincense, which figures into the Christian Christmas story as one of the gifts of the Magi to the young Christ child, actually had a connection with winter solstice and the sun in pagan cultures and religions before Christianity took form. In ancient Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, amongst the Greeks and the Romans, frankincense has been used as a ceremonial incense it's commonly connected in the past and in the present with the sun. It has many uses. It is a good purifying incense, clearing away negativity, illness, and it also, in that regard, can consecrate a place not only driving away negativity, but uplifting the spirits of a place. It is an incense connected with protection. And one reason it is burned commonly in ceremonies across many different religious traditions is because it's connected with spiritual illumination. 
frankincense can come in different forms for use. The form that I use the most is the gum resin form, where beads of frankincense are harvested from the frankincense tree. It's um, liquid gum resin that actually takes form. But in addition to gum resin, which can be fumed over one of those self-igniting charcoal blocks that are available at metaphysical shops and church supply shops, in addition to fuming frankincense in that way, there are a number of different incenses, jaw sticks and cone incense and other forms of incense where the frankincense scent and or actual materials are woven into the compound that is, that is then kindled. Another way that frankincense can be used is as an oil. And that oil may take the form of a scent in a candle or a scent that is put in an oil diffuser or in the form of a perfume that may be sprayed or um, in other ways um, put within to a space. Frankincense is a way for welcoming in the winter solstice sun. Certainly it can be burned to bless a place. It also can be burned as an offering to honor and welcome in the newborn winter solstice sun. Another sacred plant of winter solstice is that of the holly. The holly typically has an all green leaf, although there are variegated ones where it's green and white, and red berries. And the holly has been used since ancient pagan times to represent the old solar year that is waning. It's the sun in the final stages of its life before the new solar year begins. Holly has been used to deck the halls across different cultures and times. For the Romans, at their Saturnalia, much holly was used. Holly was connected with the god Saturn, the god of agriculture, and also has had association with the winter solstice time and with other sacred forms. In Old England, there were holly boys, and the holly king, who figures in the lore of the old sun and solar year passing, and that being in contact with the new solar year, the oak. In fact, at the winter solstice pageant that Circle Sanctuary holds every year in Madison, Wisconsin, we have an enactment of the holly king and the oak king 
doing a mock battle. And of course, for winter solstice, the Oak King always wins because the holly is the old sun passing and the Oak King represents the new solar year coming. Holly can be put in wreaths. It may be put in vases, may be put over doorways. Sometimes holly is fashioned into a crown. Uh, Some figures of Santa have a holly crown, and that really harkens back to its connection with Saturn and the Saturnalia. And holly continues to be used in contemporary pagan celebrations of winter solstice as well as Christian celebrations of Christmas. It's a wonderful um, plant to have. I have artificial representational holly rings around a number of candles that I have as a decorative piece to represent this holiday time. Talking about holly does lead us into the oak, symbolizing the new solar year, the waxing sun. Some of the ways that oak figures into winter solstice decorations is actually acorns that are being placed in bowls and um, acorn ornaments on yule trees. Um, Those are some ways that oak takes the form. But perhaps the one that's most commonly used for oak is the yule log. And that's a tradition that we have in our own household as well as at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve with our annual pagan Yuletide celebration. We kindle a very large log of oak to represent the new solar year coming. Burning oak in fires at winter solstice can be a really powerful way of connecting with the holiday. Sometimes we decorate our Yule log with dried holly sprigs so that we have both the old year passing as well as the new year coming. We also have thrown into a winter solstice fire acorns with wishes for the new solar year. Mistletoe is common to many winter solstice celebrations. It is a symbol of peace, prosperity, well-being, healing, fertility. It also can represent protection and rest. It may be hung in the form of a sprig above a doorway as an amulet. Um, Fresh mistletoe gathered together may be put in a silver or pewter kissing ball, which may be hung up in an entranceway of a home or um, at a threshold. 
the idea of kissing under the mistletoe has its roots in the old pagan custom of making pledges under mistletoe and making peace treaties under mistletoe. Well, there is a whole fertility and um, joy connected with mistletoe as well. And that is a plant that is probably most known for the kissing rather than the peacemaking, but all of those are part of its winter solstice heritage. Ivy, you may have heard the carol, the holly and the ivy. Well, the ivy is another plant connected with winter solstice. And in particular, it has associations with Dionysus, the um, a Greek god, and Bacchus, a Roman god, both of whom have had connections with winter solstice time. It also is connected with the great goddess. And there are some traditions in old England of having ivy girls who are part of celebrations um, just as holly boys are. Ivy can take the form of wreaths or being added to wreaths. It can be in garlands. It sometimes is added to crowns. And it represents the greening of life and the continuity of life year-round. And I have Baltic ivy as well as some English ivy growing outside at my home. And even in the depths of Wisconsin winter, I have some ivy and some bit of greenery um, to be able to look at during the winter time. <clears throat> Another plant connected with winter solstice is wheat. And wheat sheaves are sometimes given as gifts. Wheat weavings may be given as gifts, not only to bless the home, but to convey good luck, good fortune. Wheat symbolizes sustenance, abundance, fertility, good fortune. Certainly, there's a lot of baking going on at this time of year, and wheat flour is used for lots of pastries and cookies and cakes and bread. Some fashion straw figures and symbols of Yuletide out of wheat. And Wheat also is linked in with some winter solstice divinities. In particular, not only Saturn in Old Rome, but his partner, Ops, the goddess of plenty, who gives us the root word for opulent. In Teutonic, Scandinavian and Germanic countries, um, wheat often is um, put around the home to represent abundance. In Sweden, straw is fashioned into what's known as the Yule goat, sometimes seen as a gift bringer, sometimes linked with Thor, the old pagan god. Wheat is 
a wonderful plant year-round, and its tradition does continue to its present day. And looking at evergreens again and their representation of the continuity of life, the really fragrant greens can really be a blessing to the house, having that wonderful smell, whether it is coming from a Yule tree or freshly cut greens. Having garlands of greens, actual greens or representational greens, can be a wonderful way to adorn a home. And there's now many different places selling harvested trees also have evergreen garlands available as well as wreaths. And in working with evergreens, a tradition that we do at Circle Sanctuary, and I do in my own home, which is through the woods and up the hill next door, as Yuletide ends, we gather the greens up and put them in a place where they dry for a few weeks, and then at impulk time, we burn the greens, representing the turning of the wheel. Some things to share now regarding sacred plants winter solstice includes looking at ways of working with these plants for gift-giving. One way is to have a living plant. In more contemporary times, poinsettia or poinsettia, depending on your preference of pronunciation, plants, which really are popular and have their roots down in Mexico and some water, warmer climes, but are now grown in greenhouses in many places throughout the U.S. and some other parts of the world, that can make a wonderful gift, having some type of herb plant um, or a fashioned wreath, such as a bayberry wreath or a holly wreath, an evergreen wreath. Those all can be used as gifts. One of the gifts that we give out every year are mistletoe sprigs. We have fresh mistletoe that is harvested in a sacred way from Crone's Cradle Conserve down in Florida. Now, Sister Center, and we really appreciate having the mistletoe shipped up to us every year. We keep it um, in a cool place until our winter solstice pageant, and then literally we get several hundred amulet sprigs from all the mistletoe that we are gifted with and we place them on a great altar and it absorbs all of the good energy of our ceremonial evening and then at the end of our winter solstice pageant following our um, meditation for world peace and our concluding singing and drumming to welcome in the new year those who have participated and attended the event all come up and take a sprig home for use um, to bless 
one's home for the holiday season. And mistletoe amulets, while they're connected with winter solstice, really are great to have year-round. After they have dried, they actually take more of a golden color. And for that reason, another name for mistletoe is the golden bough. Yule logs not only can be burned in the hearth fire, but for people that don't have a bonfire area near their home or a hearth fire place in their home can actually take a Yule log and create some holes for taper candles or votive tea lights or other kinds of candles can be set within a Yule log or a Yule log can be decorated and some candles put right in front of it and used as a centerpiece. So it's not necessary to actually kindle a whole Yule log in a hearth fire or a bonfire in order to have a Yule log tradition. Indeed, most of the people that I know who do Yule log work actually are living in urban areas without a hearth fire and use this um, symbolic Yule log and candle holder as um, the means for being able to connect with that tradition. Having greenery, having the lore, sharing the stories and the meanings and some of the myths connected with the sacred plants of winter solstice can be a wonderful addition to solstice celebrations and doing some type of meditation involving greenery also can be helpful. I invite you now to join me in a short meditation and connecting with the sacred plants of winter solstice. In the next few moments of quiet, take some deep, slow breaths. And let your attention focus on relaxation. And then connecting with the sacred according to your own tradition. And then calling to mind the spirit of winter solstice of the Yuletide. And now imagine that you have a great cornucopia, a silver cornucopia, a horn of plenty that's starting to form. And as you connect with it, you see within this horn of plenty 
one or more types of plants of winter solstice. Pay attention to what plant appears first within that horn of plenty. And when you are ready, take that out and hold it for a few moments. Let it be the focus of your attention. Let your connection with that plant of winter solstice bring forth a message. And then set that plant down, return to the cornucopia and its magic, and another plant appears. Take that forth, and in like fashion, connect with it, and pay attention. to what it has to share. And finally, reaching into the Horn of Plenty again, another plant of winter solstice emerges. Connect with that. Let it bring you a message. And now imagining you gathering up the three plants that you've worked with and carrying with you the cornucopia. Imagine yourself going to a sacred place and setting the plants there along with the cornucopia. And as you do, put forth a wish of well-being for others this Yuletide. And then when you feel complete with that experience, carry with you the memories of what came to mind and an appreciation for plants not only that can enhance winter solstice celebrations as decorations, as ritual tools, but as living spiritual beings that you can connect with and that can help you connect with the spirit of the season. 
we give thanks to all the plants of winter solstice that we've talked about thus far and that we'll talk about in the next few moments as we move into our um, discussion time. And I want to welcome into our conversation David and Jeanette Ewing and and those who are in live chat who may have some things to contribute. I also welcome you. Well, good Yuletide. Hello, happy Yuletide. So thoughts about sacred plants of winter solstice. Do you have a favorite one that you use in your own celebrations? Uh, We've used holly quite a bit. Uh, We happen to have, we planted holly bushes uh, quite a few years ago, Uh and uh, they're exceptionally large. The ones that we have growing on the side of our house They've actually grown very large, and we're actually able to harvest quite a bit of it. So I've done a variety of different things over the years. Um, I might just, like, sprig different places, um, maybe have them up, uh, like, over uh, the doorways to different entrance areas, uh, things like that. I've made uh, plant displays, taking holly, uh, rosemary that we have growing, and uh, a few other plants and just making a, you know, uh, a floral display that will last, you know, a couple of weeks uh, if you tend to it right. Uh, various things like that. Yeah, one of the things that comes into my household every year is an amaryllis. And I give thanks to my good friend Deborah who gives me a amaryllis every year and And it's wonderful. We start it um, growing. It comes, and generally by the time Imbolc comes around, it's burst into bloom, and it can be quite spectacular. So to actually have a plant that's um, alive and growing that comes in at the Yuletide and then blooms is really a wonderful thing. And and I think giving plants can be a fun a fun thing if you have plant lovers in your life. Have any of you um, done pomanders? It's taking a lemon or an orange, usually it's one or the other, and putting cloves in them and then rolling them in like a spice mixture. It's an old scent ball um, type of... Um, charm or um, used to help, I guess you might call it a medieval air freshener. Um, I've used them as decorations on trees. They're pretty labor-intensive to create, but they are a lot of fun. And um, I I still have some of my pomanders from winter solstices years ago that I crafted. It's interesting that you should mention that. I didn't know about, because you mentioned this last week, and I didn't know about the whole uh, rolling it in crushed spices. I had not done that. I had just, you know, stuck clothes in it and, you know, wrapped a, like a piece of ribbon around it and, like, right. 
a doorway or on a tree or whatever. Yeah. But the the adding the spice part actually is probably better for the the fragrant spice end of it. Because I'd always wondered, you know, I'll stick the clothes in there and then, you know, it smells a little bit, but not that much. So I used it mostly for looks. Because I had yeah. that, actually rolling it in spices. I mean, it's actually a good that idea. Yeah, yeah it, it does make sense. Yeah, and orris root is a really good fixative. So if you're having powdered cinnamon, powdered allspice, powdered um, um, nutmeg, and some other spices, if you also put some orris root, powdered orris root in it, it helps the um, the smells, the beautiful aromas um, stay around longer. So that's another use and once you've made a pomander, you know, after a while, even with fixative in it, the aroma um may start dissipating. Well, you can freshen it up by putting a few drops of of spiced oil on it. Right. Or you can get a new mixture and add another layer. <laughs> it's really uh so one one year, this back in the nineteen seventies, early on as I was developing winter solstice traditions for my own personal life and household, I, I made lots of pomanders and gave them as gifts as well as had them on um, the tree as decoration. Now, some people use bayberry as a winter solstice plant, and I have a bayberry wreath, which I really like, and... Um, the bayberry candles made of the scent of bayberry for many people says holiday time yuletide i'm wondering if there's any comments um experiences um that are being or questions being shared in the chat room yeah. Yeah, someone had mentioned they uh they had a poinsettia tree um at uh, their mom's house growing up. Um I know in the past off and on we've had uh poinsettias in right. the house not recently. No, when I don't our, think we've ever had a poinsettia in the house. I thought we had at least No, one. because they're poisonous. Yeah, they're poisonous, so um yeah, maybe we haven't. My parents have, but yeah, because of the whole poison to cats thing. Yeah, if you have a lot of uh, uh, creatures that live with you, you have to be careful what uh, <laughs> what sacred plants you have inside and uh, that are real and and what are representational. You yeah. know how to do that, but yeah, they they actually have been. They're a more recent addition to the holiday season, uh, but is something that are that's very widespread across America right now. And uh, we certainly have had some of those, and uh, we certainly have had a number of plants. I don't think they've ever I've ever seen one really huge because of our climate area. But yeah, I'm wondering too. Um, I've I posted some a, a photograph of mistletoe 
on uh, my main Facebook page and some of the comments of I invite people to share about some of their ways of celebrating winter solstice with sacred plants and and a lot of people are mentioning holly and mistletoe um some are also mentioning pine and pine cones and pine cones are wonderful decorations i like to go and gather pine cones from a place at circle sanctuary land called spirit rock we have such an abundance pine cones that come from the pine trees up there and I've given them out as gifts and we've used them in all sorts of decorations but a very simple and economical um, way of doing decoration is to get a basket and put pine cones in it and get sprigs of evergreen and just kind of mix them together and some people like to take the glass ball ornaments from um, that are used to decorate yule trees and also put them in I have a picture of my pine cones and um, evergreen sprigs on my facebook page as an example of how to do um, work with yuletide greenery um, one of the things that we've also done is uh, living here where we are at um the Virginia pine is very common, and you can go just about anywhere in any wooded area and get Virginia pine and uh, and cedar. It's, all, it's, it's actually a juniper tree, but it's called Virginia cedar wood, and mm-hmm. they're all over the place around here. And I've actually brought those in, too, because, I mean, they're all over the place. I mean, all I have to do is, like, basically walk around the corner, and I live in a suburban area, so that's really nice for those of us who live in suburban areas, it's actually easy here in northern Virginia anyway. Um, it's easy to find, as well as lots of pine cones. Um, in fact, I mean, even as we speak, there is a giant pine cone that David was on a trip to San Diego for business, and he was somewhere or other, and it's... I was, at the, old, I was at the old Naval Training Center. Oh, okay. It's been turned into some commercial a mall. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, Shopping uh, and stuff. And, and I happened to, um, I was taking a picture of something, and I took a step, and I almost tripped over this huge pine cone. It's it's like eight inches tall by about six inches across. You know, Wow. Big pine trees they have out in Southern California. Yeah, so I packed it up, wrapped it in a bag, and packed it up and brought it home for a gift. So it's, it's sitting on our... Uh on top of our entertainment center. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. It's bigger than anything that we have around here. Um, so we keep pine cones all over the place. And one of the nice things about bringing evergreens in is that if you have pets, you know, even the cats, leave them alone. they do leave them alone. They find the taste objectionable, so they don't tend to mess with them too much. Um so that's one of the pluses about doing that. They they won't mess with it, although they'll try, certainly. You know, after a first taste where they decide they don't like it, then they'll leave it alone. So um, I can't speak for all pets, but at least our cats don't really like it. So um, that's one of the nice things about bringing stuff in. You can, you know, we've put it various places from year to year, 
and, you know, made various different kinds of, of decorations. And it's, you know, it's certainly uh, economical, you know, when you can just go in your back, you know, around the corner and get some stuff, tie a ribbon around it, and, you know, decorate your house. And, you know, it does help with, uh, you know, just bringing that sense of the holiday into the house, especially around here. Um, it was you know, close to 50 degrees, and probably at Christmas, at Yuletide, um, we'll be lucky if the temperature is below 50. It just doesn't feel very Christmassy. Um, You know, you don't get that Yuletide feeling. We don't ever get snow at this time of the year, so bringing evergreens into the house is really nice to help uh, bring in that sense of the Yuletide, especially for those of us who live in climates that just aren't terribly cold at this time of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I really think that it's wonderful that old traditions are continuing to carry on in the present day. And and while pretty much these sacred plants of winter solstice that we've talked about, you know, the holly and the ivy and the oak and the evergreens and the wheat have roots that go way back in time, as do the citrus, because um, in the Mediterranean climates in ancient Rome and old Greece, uh, clearly you were dealing with a different kind of climate, and so there is abundance and prosperity. So those have old roots as well. But whether the plants are from the ancient past or ones that have more recently been added to the mix, it's wonderful to be able to have that connection with nature and to have them be part of the tradition. I'd like to end by inviting all our listeners to imagine creating a circle of evergreens around you as a form of meditation, to be in the center of a circle of greens and to hold in your hands a golden acorn representing the new year coming. And to hold in one's heart the promise of continuity and connection with the larger circle of nature of which we are all part. I want to give thanks to everyone who has listened live, who've contributed to live chat, um, to David and Jeanette, to those who posted to my Facebook. If you want to connect with more information about winter solstice, you can go to www.circlesanctuary.org. And on our main page, you'll not only see information about our winter solstice pageant on winter solstice night and our community yule, but you'll find a section on celebrating winter solstice, lore and rituals, that 
If you click on that link, we'll take you to a page with chants and articles and rituals and variety of materials that I put together as part of celebrating the seasons. I invite you all to stay tuned for our pagan pre-show from Pagans Tonight and um, give thanks to the Pagans Tonight Radio Network and also invite you to tune in on Wednesday nights to listen to David and Jeanette and Pam on Pagan Warrior Radio, followed by a pagan music show that Pam does. May you all have a wonderful Yuletide, and I invite you to join me next week for more winter solstice cheer.
Sanctuaries radio ministry programs. Join us every Tuesday evening at 9 o'clock Eastern following the Nature Folk Program with the Reverend Lita Fox as we discuss various topics of interest to the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Sanctuary Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing and Circle Minister Deborah Rose. And before we begin, we would like to express our thanks to the Witches School International and the Pagan Tonight Radio Network for helping us reach the community. And for more information about Witches School, please visit them on the web at www.witchschool.com. And for more information about Circle Sanctuary and everything they do for the community, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org. I'm going to do it. Yes. Well, good evening, everybody. This is uh, David and Jeanette here. Hello, Jeanette. Hello. Say something. I can't see you wave. I can see you waving. Uh, so we're here for another edition of Circle Talk. It is uh, 
Thursday, December 12th? No, it's Tuesday, December 12th. Yeah, it's Tuesday, December 12th. Okay, time warp. Um, It's cold outside. It is cold outside. So I do have to start this discussion by mentioning that if you happen to hear a cat crying in the background, this cat is not in distress. This cat wants to go outside in very cold, uh, wintry, it's blowing. Yes, it's, it's very, very cold and windy outside right, right. at our home in Northern Virginia, and he foolishly wants to go out into our fenced backyard. Why, I do not know. And so if you hear the sound, do not be alarmed. He is just being whiny. whiny. He's been out before. He went out. The wind blew. He ran back inside, and now he wants to go back out again. So we have to we have that to contend with this evening in the background at some point. Um because he's awesome that way. Yes, but he's that's Loki. Um, he's kind of whiny about that. So there he is. <laughs> Anyhow, this evening um, we have a special guest with us tonight. His name is Jack Montgomery, and he has quite a bit of background and experience. This is really we're really looking forward to hearing more from him about his where he's coming from and what he has what he his experiences and his teachings. Um, he has written a book called American Shamans, A Journey with Traditional Healers, and that came out a few years ago, and he's done some other work, um, written some stuff about hoodoo, um, he's, he's written and talked about, um, hex magic? Yes. Okay. I'm feeling words. Um... Get his info here real quick. So, Jack is um, professor and collection services coordinator at Western Kentucky University Libraries. He's been a professional speaker since 1989, doing uh, professional seminars on conflict and change management, as well as emotional intelligence to library groups nationwide. Um, studied world religions and academically and personally since the early 70s. Um, his book, American Shamans, was published in 2008, and he's also been a professional musician since 1969, releasing four CDs of his original and his arrangements um, of traditional folk music. And right before the show, between Selena's program and ours, we that was uh, John Barleycorn by uh, Jack Montgomery and Water Sprite. So he's, I don't know. We're just excited to hear, to hear to have him on the show and to talk to him. So we're going to go ahead and bring him into the conversation here. Good evening, Jack. Good evening. Nice oh, to be here. Hey. I think I'm going to kick him out. Thanks for being I've here. I've got kitties, too. <laughs> yeah. And we would like to begin by saying that you would – Originally, we're going to be on. Was it last month or the month before? I think it was the month before, and ended up it was. stranded out on the highway. <laughs> That's right, in the yeah. middle of nowhere, and <laughs> yeah, never a good place to have a car break down when there's nothing around. So we, I don't know, I don't remember what we did. As a result of that, I think maybe we just played some music or something, and 
we were able to reschedule you for this month, which is great. I sure appreciate it. And before, and I do have to say, before you um, were tapped by Deb Gilbert to be a guest on the show, I had, yeah, Deborah Rose. She goes by Deborah Rose. That's her stage name. Before she had you scheduled to be on the show, I had been in the process, personally, of looking for more information on hoodoo and American folk magic, and I had come across your book, but that was before I knew, yes, because you're listed in Amazon, and I had not heard of your name before, and it wasn't until after that that things started clicking with, oh, wait a minute, I think I have heard of this person before. (laughs) Yeah, so with all of the other, there are some other authors, a variety of other authors, including Byron Ballard, whose books I ended up buying because I, I did not have any background on anything else. So now I have something else to buy on Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) Byron's an excellent resource. She really is. She's excellent. Um, I know her personally, and and we've talked many times, but she's she's the real thing, as they say. We have had her on our show a couple of times already and probably have her on again sometime in 2018 as well. So, we'll get to meet her, and we will finally, we will finally get to personally meet her um, later on. This probably this coming November next year, when she joins us at our Salon retreat that we host up here in Northern Virginia called Hallowed Homecoming. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we have other folks on the planning committee who who know her more better than we do. Who talked to her, I guess, at a gathering in Georgia this past summer, and. She penciled us in for uh, either the weekends that we can possibly get. We won't know what weekend it's going to be until the park confirms our our, uh, our request. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's a yeah, it's a Salmon gathering. It's a national park cabin camping, full feast hall that we provide food, ritual stuff. And it's really it's a really nice place to to go back and just re- disconnect from the world and and honor uh, Salmon. So she's going to be joining us next year for that. And we're really excited to. Uh, have her along for that. So we're uh, um, so hearing that you're connected with her, you're, you're friends with her too. I mean, that's just that's that it's the kind of the small world. Yeah, it um, is a small world, very small yeah. world. And uh. yeah, there really aren't too many authors mm-hmm. that write about this sort of stuff. Uh, there are yes, a whole lot sir. more than there used to be. I assure you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I was when I first started um, researching about this back in the 1970s, I mean, you were, it was like pulling teeth to find someone who'd written something. Um, there were a lot of scholarly articles, but that's about all there were, and that's what propelled me out of. I was a college student at the University of South Carolina, and I was taking anthropology classes, reading ethnographies, and I thought I don't want to just sit here. I want to go talk to people, and I want to. Go, and so I started looking around, and someone recommended that I look up this old man down in Beaufort, and it turned out to be a root doctor, 
or a, a practitioner of hoodoo. And yeah. that's how I got started back in 1974. So, but there were, you're right, there, there, there aren't many now, but there was, it was almost nothing back then. One or two people were writing about all this in any serious way. And I'm glad that everybody has gotten on the bandwagon because it's going to keep it alive. And it's it's living anyway, but this way it will get to more ears and more eyes, and that's what's important. Right. And one of the problems with any sort of strain or form of American folk magic, whether it's hoodoo or the Appalachian granny magic or whatever, is mm-hmm. people don't write things down, mm-hmm. or if they do, it's tucked away in little books and little places here and there. It's mm-hmm. passed down to their students, probably family members, and yep. it does If the family member wants to know it. That's right. right. And a lot yeah. of times the family will not don't want to have any part of it. Uh and that's why, you know, if you know about one of these people that's getting ready to pass, you need to approach the family and try to find out if there is any kind of diary or anything that you can get your hands on and that they will sometimes sell you. It's interesting, it's a very interesting way because um with the granny woman that I met in in southwest Virginia I had to swear to her family that I would never reveal her actual name. Right. Because they lived in a very small community, and they felt like their family would suffer if this got out about their mother. So I I made and kept that promise for, golly, that's 40 years. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the, yeah, go ahead. No, because even even though all three of these traditions are all anchored in Christianity, and they are, yeah. uh, it's still a very highly suspect uh, practice because while a person could be looked at as a healer, as a worker of magic, if things went wrong, they also could easily and often did become a scapegoat for something that went wrong in the community. In other words, what they did marginalized them oftentimes and could make them, you know, they could suffer a really sometimes a dreadful fate for uh, even after helping people for many years, the community could turn on them. So it was not something that anyone took lightly. This was a very deadly, serious business. Um especially in in the hoodoo tradition where you know I was warned uh, you know if you don't take this seriously you could find yourself uh missing no one would ever know what happened to you yeah so wow. i mean it's it a lot of people approach this with a very cavalier oh let's try this on the today but if you're going to really pursue this you're going to come up against the deadly serious quality of it Besides, when you start to consciously change your own view of reality, which all of this eventually will do, then it will cost you. It will cost you uh, socially. It will cost you personally. And so you better be serious about what you want and your and your goals and your strengths. You better know who you are as a person. 
because every part of it will be tested. And I'm not trying to scare people away from it, but I'm also trying to impose upon it that magic is very real. And when you enter into that alternate reality uh, in a conscious way without the assistance of any drugs or anything else, you're walking into something that you have never experienced before, and it will take its toll on you for a while until you learn to manage it. The first question I ever asked Lee Gandy, the Hexenmeister I knew in Lexington, South Carolina, was how does one become a Hexenmeister? And he looked over at me and said, by being a hex till you can manage it. And that was a loaded statement because he was trying to tell me this won't be easy for you. You know, coming from a very rationalistic-based world where I had to find a psychological or sociological answer for everything. And I did suffer quite a bit with it. When uh, You know, when you see things and hear things and experience things that don't match your view of reality, uh, it's going to challenge you, and you're going to have to rethink that view of reality, and it will become expanded, and you better be ready for it. And I think real serious practitioners all know this. That's, and that's why it's almost like a sacred calling for those that are very serious about it. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to come across uh, in a negative way, but I just want people to understand up front. This is this is quite serious. It was serious to our grandparents, and it was serious. It should be serious to us. That's like learning any craft kind of a thing. You need to learn the safety precautions and 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 know what the repercussions. Learning kind of ahead of time. Yeah. Getting it. Yeah. You know, if if you take a course, uh, you know, a study and, and get a degree, it's going to change you. It, you know, right. what, and so if you learn to play an instrument, a musical instrument, learn an art, it will change you. This will change you as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I I was always fascinated when I w- was in college with the character of the shaman. Right. And I, real, and I realized with a lot of the folk healers I was meeting that they did things that were shamanic in nature. And a shaman is a person who can enter con- alternate states of consciousness at will and contact and utilize other energies outside of normal consciousness to accomplish things. All genuine folk traditions, whether it be hoodoo or powwow, or even granny magic, all tap into this. And therefore, that's how I ended up calling it um, American shamans. Mm-hmm. Um, that, <laughs> and my uh, my publisher wanted a catchy title. <laughs> so I went for that too. But it, it was very serious. These were people in America living in every community who were there as part of the community who were sought after and yet feared. So it was an interesting it's been an interesting thing to read about their lives and their histories and to talk to them. Um, people were very they either loved Lee Gandy or they were afraid of him and hated him. So he walked that line all the time with uh with his craft as as you say. So was he, what specifically did he actually practice? 
He practiced what's called powwow, and that's a German-American tradition of magic and healing and shamanic activities that goes back across the pond to the first time it appeared in any way, I think was sometime in written form, was during the Middle Ages. But there are charms that one uses that obviously um, indicate that it goes back to um, pagan origins. There's one for a sprain, which uh, is called the second Merzberg charm, which goes, Fole and Woden went to the wood. There was Baldur's coat, and his foot was wrenched. Then Sintut charmed it, and Suna her sister. And it goes on like that. Joint to wrench, to blood wrench, bone to bone, bone blood to blood, joint to joint, as if they were glued together. Yeah. Now what happened was, this became Christianized. And much later on, but those roots are still back in the pagan uh, magic of the day. So that's that's what Lee Gandy practiced. He came through in heritage sense. He is a uh, grandfather was one. His uh, uh, his mother was not. It jumped a generation. In fact, his great grandfather uh, got reckless one time and ended up getting himself killed. Um, you know, these are weather witches as well. Yeah. Apparently, this old man got mad because uh, the lightning struck his favorite peach tree. And he yelled at it and said, burn a tree, will you? This is old Zach. Let's see you flash one at me. And, of course, the lightning did, and he was killed instantly. Uh, but Lee was a, a former school teacher, and he was huh? retired when I met him. Um, he lived in Lexington, South Carolina. Uh, okay. We just found his old home again. Um, I knew him for a period of four and a half years before I moved to Virginia. And I was his student along with another gentleman who I mentioned earlier. I've also since reconnected with the powwow tradition in Pennsylvania, and that's a very vibrant tradition there. There's some wonderful people doing some wonderful work in preserving it and making it live today as it does, but making sure that people look at it and understand it within its proper light as a genuine um not in in the sense of any negative witchcraft this is a positive thing i've been to the mountain mary's grave who was a 19th century powwow and a lot of the people from only valley consider a lot of the powwows consider her to be sort of the grandmother of them all and we got permission to go up on her to her gravesite <clears throat> and it was an amazing experience. It truly was. I didn't expect anything, but boy, I sure got it. Um, it's just, it's been a for me. It's been a, over forty years of uh, an amazing life. Um, <clears throat> and people like Patrick Don Moyer at the Cutstown University, uh, Rob Chapman, uh, even even Silver Ravenwolf. Um, has written a, wrote one of the early books uh, about powwow magic in the modern era. Of course, there have been written stuff about powwow since 1819, so it's it's that are still in print. Yeah, I so think it was it's through. Still act, go yeah. ahead. No, I think it was. I think it was through. You know, back when we first started learning about our pagan past, you know, Silver Ravenwolf was one of the bigger authors in the area in the time, 
And I remember, you know, hearing about um, Pow Wow through her writing. Yeah, um, that's the first time I'd heard yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, it was, I didn't know it had those types of pagan magical underpinnings. Right. Yeah, at all. Well, I think most powwows um, would look at and say, well, you know, it probably does, but now I can tell you they're probably 99.9% Christian in their focus. But right. that's that's as much a protection for themselves as anything else. And, you know, they they there's no doubt about their belief and their faith. Right. Um, magic is a part of that faith. The well, ability to lay like, hands and heal is is a part of that faith. Right. Well, that's like the folks who who practice um, the folk magic stuff, the Mexican, uh, the brujas and stuff. You know, you'll you'll go to church, and you know, on Sunday you go to go to church, but if you need to be healed, you go to the bruja. The Kunindera. Yeah. yeah. That. Yes, and they're Catholic. Right. So. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. So it's it's not as much religion. That, so this stuff, the the powwow and 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 this work really isn't as much religious to, in a lot of ways. It's tradition. It's folk tradition. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I think that's something that. But it has that, it has some remarkably sophisticated underpinnings, in its concepts of how things work, yeah. such as the idea of an ideational construct, which is one of the, the ideas in powwow. And in hoodoo, which is that you can take and create a thought and give it a certain, um, what's the word, solidity, and project it. And you create these things for yourself. You can create companions. You can create um, uh, projections that you can send out to do your bidding. Lee was gifted at that. He was gifted at that kind of trance work, and it's all done in a state of trance. Okay. Sorry if I'm kind of jumping all over the place with this, but <laughs> um, I just kind of wanted to touch on that. It's it's remarkable how the idea of um, and all this magical is, is considered a very natural thing. It's voluntary and cooperative. Uh, and it's all about energy. It's all about the movement of energy. Um, you know, because energy can't be possessed. It can only be channeled. It's what we are at our base. Right. You, 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 um, energy is, I mean, there's only a certain amount of energy in the, in the universe kind of idea. So it's how you channel and focus it um, as it flows. You can't, yeah. You can pool it and use it. But you can't. Right. Um, you can only control it to a point. I know one of the times that you realized that, that something more is going on than you were aware of was uh, one time a, a friend brought a little boy brought this dog over, and it had been hit by a car, and I it was bleeding from the mouth, and I thought, oh, this poor thing's dead. And the other student who I reconnected with said, let me try to help him. And I thought, well, this is kind of mean. Don't get this kid all, you know, worked up on the fact that his dog's going to die. Well, this guy rolled, went in into trance, put his hands out over the dog. All of a sudden, the dog stood up, wagged its tail, 
and went off with the little boy. And I just stood there going, your reality has just changed. Right. Your reality is not what I thought it was. Wow. And when I first saw a healing take place, when it was first done to me, your reality changes. Your sense of, of who you are and what this world is all about changes in a very um, direct way. When you encounter your first ghost, as they're called, entity, yep. that's a better term, yep. your life changes. Everything changes. And folk magic will change you. Although, to be honest about it, to be absolutely most folk magic that's done in this country is very simple. It's very healing-oriented, or it's done in a form of protective magic. I think in the last 15 years, I've made only a handful of love um, love roots or love charms. Uh-huh. I've made dozens and dozens and dozens of protective amulets. And I think it's just where we are in, in this world right now. People feel like they're they need protection far more than they need money or love. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, because if you're well protected, the others the other things fall into place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel if you feel secure and protected in what you're doing and who you are and where you're at, then yeah. Yeah. You can focus on other things. Yeah. Right. And I suppose the only other thing that people probably would ask for on a regular basis might be prosperity oriented. It'd be surprised how few people actually ask for that. Yeah. It's really odd. As I would think most people would say, you know, I need more money. Okay. You, you Okay, that's fine. But what most people are asking for is give me the security to walk through life. Give me the security to go to bed at night and put my head on a pillow and go to sleep. And give me the security to feel safe because there's something in my house now that isn't right. Whether I created it or it got in by intrusion. Yeah. And a lot of times, I know when I was sitting with Mr. McTeer, the, the Buford Root Doctor, one day I pointed to his altar, which was back behind his real estate office, believe it or not, there in downtown Beaufort, and we went through two curtains, and there we were, and there's this, this rather wild-looking altar with all this stuff on it. And I finally looked at him, and I said, what is all this? He goes, props. They're props, Jack. Everything there is to help the person get to the right state of mind. That's where the magic actually happens. Not because of this wand, not because of this picture or statue because they have gotten into the right state of mind to be healed to be relieved of their suffering or whatever pardon yeah it's just the stuff that helps people focus and and get themselves where they need to be Mm mm-hmm yeah. A lot of times when you when you enter trance and so you're divining, because another thing that's common among all folk magic people is divination, whether it be divining rods, mirror scrying, uh, water scrying, all of that. People are you're finding things for people. You're locating other people for them. 
right. you're trying to help them get into the kind of situation where they you can awaken within them the memory that they need to have. And your trance helps them. It's also where you do your best work. Um, you don't have to be in trance. Yeah, you do. What am I saying? You don't have to be in deep trance for it to work. But like if you're yeah. if you're doing water water witching, you'll find yourself automatically sort of slipping into it. And about then you'll feel the thing come alive in your hand. And that's that's when it starts to happen. That's when the so-called magic starts to happen. It's when you've let go enough of your everyday mind to open yourself to what really else is out there. You only experience a, a very limited range of, of things that you see and things that you hear. And that's that's scientifically verified. There's so much more going on around you. But if you open that little window a bit, all this stuff will come in. And that's what folk magic really gets down to being serious. Especially if you're doing things like uh, trying to help people get rid of... Um, Entities in their home, you know, they've gotten in through intrusion. Uh, boy, you've got to be able to, to know how to protect yourself, how to work with these things, how to work with the people. Because as Mr. McTeer once said, I'm a poor man's psychiatrist. And every good folk healer is part counselor, is part listener is a very careful listener. You know what I'm saying? They uh, they are helping the person in a holistic way. It does no good just to give someone a charm that here, do this, turn, walk around the back of your house and bear it behind your back door. You've got to hear what their problem is. You've got to know and be able to sense where they're coming from and what their real agenda is. Because many times people come to you with some other agenda than what they initially voice. And you've got to be able to reach out to them and say, um, isn't that isn't this what you're really after? And that's 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 the counseling part of it. And see a lot of the original uh, folk people lived in small communities. And what what's true about all small communities? Everybody knows everybody. Right, yeah. So they, <laughs> so they had a they had a heads up there. Yeah. But it even work it works even when you're sitting across from them and you're you sort of start reading them. You start reading the person. And that's that's essential that you do that before you ever recommend anything to anyone. Because most people deep down kind of know what they need to do right to get what they want or get what they need they just need somebody to help them kind of push them on the path or, or help them show you know find the path of well you know and and realize that realize it you know because people don't listen to the inner their voices that as much you know the intuition and the that sort of message, that sort of communication that people get, people are typically don't listen to it as well 
so they need some. That's what a lot of some of it is is just helping. Well, helping the person hear what they really what they already know. Exactly, at some and level. Real, yeah, yeah, to some extent. I mean, there's a little and, more. You know, more and or if less you than, if you uncover that they've got a really negative, uh, you've got to try to a really negative agenda. You've got to try to help them come to terms with what they're really thinking about doing and do they really want to do this. I'll give you an example. I had a woman yep. come to me. She was really mad at a man. He had done some terrible things. No question he had done terrible things. She wanted him dead. And nothing would do her but that she wanted him dead. I said, all right, I'll make you a kill route. And I went to work on it right in front of her, made it made it for her, and I handed it to her. I said, every time you squeeze this, it will give him pain. If you do it enough, you'll kill him. And so she took the thing and left. Uh-huh. And uh, my wife turned to me and said, is that real? Did you really do that? I said, yes. I said, but geez, this is a good person. Watch what happens. And about a week, she called and said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. He's horrible, but I can't do this. What do I do with this thing? I said, just go bury it under an oak tree. Let Mother Earth take it back. So giving her the tool and giving her the somewhat power to think that she could do what she wanted to do, her better nature took hold, and she didn't right. do it. Wow, interesting. That's, <clears throat> yeah. I, t- I tell you, you will meet lots of interesting folks if you pursue this path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because lots it's of, probably Lots easier. of very good folks. No, you know, and that's an example where somebody was coming in, somebody might want to come in, and they want something drastic done, um, kind of hoping that maybe part of them was just hoping that you would just take care of it and do it, do what she was asking, and just you would just do the thing. Um, and when you give it back, okay, well here you go. You know, here's you have the power now to do this, to to do what you're what you're looking. Um, if it's if then they see just how harmful or whatever it is, and like, oh yeah, that's that's a great example of, of um, you know that that part of it's knowing who you're talking to, who you're dealing with too. Right. Do yeah. you ever get a though that there are people that if you help them out in a particular way, they are going to end up going down a destructive path instead. That's where the initial conversation, the initial counseling must take place because you've got to try to figure out what they're really doing and why they're doing it. Um, I have just sort of given someone who I thought was not only unstable but dangerous, and you do meet those people. Oh, yeah. I I gave him a completely ineffective charm, told him a bunch of, Forgive me, BS, uh-huh. and send him out. Now, what he I can't change him in a single meeting, but I'm not going to empower him 
to make a mess of his own life, he'll do that on his own. I mean, there are a lot of people you absolutely cannot save. Right. And sometimes if you get let them too near you, they will drag you down. They are poisoned, and some are vampiric, and you've got to be able to recognize them. A lot of people, when they initially get involved in, in a healing tradition, want to help everyone, and I'm not making fun. But they've got to know there are people that are not ready to be helped. Uh, if you're dealing with someone who has a severe drug problem and someone else has brought them to you, first thing is you would, you know, you would talk them to going to get some regular counseling and maybe some help with the withdrawal. But any kind of spiritual help you can give them usually involves a form of soul retrieval. But they have to be ready for that to work. First of all, they're just going to brush you off. Otherwise, if someone else made them come, yeah. right? They're not going to take it seriously. Uh, if they are serious, though, there are things you can do. Many people are in a form of psychic pain, and there are things you can do for them that will help them try to recover some of themselves that they feel like they've lost. But it takes a huge commitment on their part. That's why um, I know one time Silver Ravenwolf said to me, because I was having a problem with people wanting me to come clean ghosts out of their house, and it was getting to be a real annoyance. And I, she says, here's what you do. Tell them to clean their house from top to bottom. It must be absolutely spotless when you walk through the door. You won't do it. And so I said, really? She says, then you'll find out the ones that are serious. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it worked. Yep. And for those that would, that would take the time to clear the clutter, and dust, not one speck of dust, not one speck of dirt on the floor. That person wants help. That person is, in, in to, to a degree, worthy of help. Now, if they're just a, a sad, broken soul, sometimes you can um, try to help them a little bit with comfort. I always try to build people up rather than tear them down. Um I've worked a couple times with people who have suffered sexual abuse. That's really tough because that kind of horrible treatment um, tears pieces of the soul away. And sometimes you have to help them reclaim themselves as at the point where they suffered that terrible injury. And you can help them do that through visualization. And that's all. That's something that traditional people would also do. This huge counseling component was also a large part of what they did. And after all, many of these people were elderly. Many of the, you know, they were retired, older people who would, you know, had the time to sit and listen. And they were by nature comforting. So there are all kinds of elements that play into this, to a successful healing. But that doesn't mean the magic isn't real either, or that it's a placebo. Gotcha. Right. So, with your particular practice, what 
traditions does it involve? Since you what? learned from this one particular person who practiced a particular, what do you call it? Is it Hexen? Oh, Lee? With Lee Gandy? Pow Wow. Yeah. Lee Gandy, yeah. It's also okay. called Braukarai. Uh, yeah, I, I do mostly powwow. Okay. I perform tr- traditional powwow healing ceremonies, and I um, work with, I do spirit work, um, just as he did. He would also, he was good at finding people who were missing. He'd lie down on his bed, and I would sit with him, to watch over him because you're vulnerable when you're like that. Vulnerable right. to outside intrusion. He would lie down on his bed, go into a trance. You know, you could poke him with a pen, he wouldn't feel it. And all of a sudden he would come back and he did this for several people who had, had children who were missing. One one couple he told them, said, your son's down in Alabama in jail. You'll need to go down and get him. That's exactly where he was. Now yeah. that's that's a real... That's a real skill, but it takes tremendous physical energy to do it. And as he told me, he said, I'm just getting too old to do this. It takes too much from me. He said, I don't feel good for several days afterwards. So there is a cost. And see, a powwow can't charge. Powwow cannot collect money for this. I've never taken a dime from anybody uh, in 40 years. Now... Hoodoo has no such barrier. They're they're perfectly willing to take your money. Um, That also opens them up to uh, um, sometimes the accusation of being practicing medicine without a license, though. So from a a spiritual standpoint and from a practical legal standpoint, uh, charging for a service is just not, not in my book. Never has been. There's also a belief that you will lose the power you have gained if you charge for it. That's yeah, why, one reason a, if it becomes a commercial activity, it's yeah. you've pretty much lost it. Right, because you and have the ability. You have that. You have that ability, and that work is you're doing the work as sort of a, as a public trust kind of idea, where you're you're doing it in service and. Once you start charging for the service, you're not really doing it as service anymore. You're doing it to gain, and it's it's a different yeah. motive. It can really it's al- alter your motive um, as to why you do it at that point. You may you may not even realize it um, to begin with, but it like you said, you know, when you start doing something, it changes you. And if you mm-hmm. you know that that that's one thing, yeah. So right, you and the, it's how the power conceives of the healing. You don't heal anybody. You're simply a connecting rod between divine energy and that person. So all it's doing is flowing through you. And it's 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 quite a feeling when it starts to flow. Um, it's like nothing you'll ever normally experience. Uh, but it's also how you know it's taking, it, it, it's going to work. But... How can you take money for something you really didn't do? You you provided the access, in other words. Yep. You're the conduit. 
Yeah, you're the conduit, exactly. Right. Now, are there differences, based on your research, are there differences then with the types, besides the charging versus not charging, are there other differences between Hoodoo and powwow? Um, You know, there's a lot of bleed over between folk traditions. Someone to say, oh, this is pure this or this is pure that, I'm sorry, I don't know where they're getting their information. Our ancestors used what worked. Um, There is a lot, for instance, with hoodoo, however, there's a lot of use of material items like herbs, uh, certain uh, imagery, um, a lot more than powwow. And that's also, with the commercial aspect in hoodoo, you have almost always had a commercial business aspect of hoodoo supply. So there have been companies after the First World War when all the um, African Americans made this great diaspora out of the uh, South to work in the factories up north, they took their needs with them. And to meet those magical needs, companies started to uh, sell these goods to them. And there's still some of those places still working now. In Atlanta, there's Miller's Rexall. Uh, we were in there this summer. Uh, a friend of mine named Tony Kale and I have been doing a series of lectures all summer, about one or two a month for about the last seven months, uh, on the hoodoo tradition. And he's a fabulous anthropologist from... Uh, Memphis, who's been collecting physical memorabilia uh, from the Memphis area and around that area to deal to um, illustrate not only the commercial aspect but how widespread and in depth this was, because hoodoo really does make use of a lot of physical items that powwow doesn't. Um, You've got all manner of charms. Have you ever seen a bottle tree? Yeah. Do you know what a you know what a bottle tree is? Seen, That's seen in both traditions. Yeah. That's both traditions. Uh, have you ever seen a spirit pot? I had not heard of a spirit pot until David just showed me pictures of what you have from your PowerPoint, PowerPoint mm-hmm. presentation. Yeah, I had not heard of that. That was a new one. Uh, there's, the spirit pots were a direct transmission from West Africa. In fact, a gentleman came to hear me speak one time, and uh, he is an anthropologist, and he came up afterwards. He says, I am from Nigeria, and he said, uh, you have you have brought me my heritage back. And I looked at him funny. I thought, I have no idea what this man's saying. And he says, I know what these spirit pots are. They're ancestor pots. All villages have them. And he began to tell me this whole story about how the, the, the ancestors' remains, whatever, and were in these pots, and it's the way they kept track of the ancestors. They were given spaces in the home. Another thing you'll see, especially in the low country, is the seashell graves. That's pure African. So there are elements that are different between the two traditions, but there are also a, a lot of crossover. Um, there are 
also <laughs> in hoodoo, there's there are folks that um, kind of practice a lot of darkness, and there's occasionally you'll hear of a powwow that's doing bad things. Uh, but generally, they don't last long. Yeah. They don't last long in, because they're going to tear themselves apart. Um, they're they're generally feared. There was a wonderful root doctor from the Low Country called Doctor Buzzard. Real name Stephanie Robinson. Yep. He. Uh, um, you heard of him? Yeah. Uh, he's legendary now, but he was. People came from all over the United States to see him. There was Jim Jordan from North Carolina, also a great root doctor. There were also white root doctors. That's another aspect of this whole thing is all races practice this. This is one of the areas where your color of your skin really didn't matter. It's where your gender didn't matter either. There's a famous root doctor from Beaufort named Dr. Snake. was a woman. Yeah, um, Yes. Had you ever seen Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Yes. Yes. Do you remember Minerva? Uh-huh. Yes. All right, Minerva was essentially a hoodoo lady, and she's right. based yeah, on a real person. <laughs> yeah. There was a wonderful woman named Aunt Carolyn Dye, who was a, a healer and a seer, and she was from um, Liberty, Arkansas. And people literally would leave... Memphis by the train load to go see her. In fact, the train was renamed the Aunt Carolyn Die Special. So she, <laughs> this is how profound uh, this was for these people. And this was whites, blacks, any race, didn't matter. Uh, Aunt Carolyn was a spiritualist as well. She was part of the spiritualist movement. That had a big impact on all folk religion because it brought out and to some degree legitimized what had always been there. That always the belief that there's spirits all around us all the time who interact with us when they want to. Most fortunately, most of them don't care one way or the other whether we're there or not. Um, but there, you know, when you ask about differences, there are differences in the charms. Um, and the type of charms that are used. In granny magic, there's, um, let's see, there's the use of, or what are they called? I'm having a moment. Eh. Feather crowns. Do you know what a feather crown is? No. This is where a person dies, and they'll cut open the pillow. And in there is a little hard ball rounded ball of feathers sometimes. And this is an omen. And it's it's meant to say that this person's spirit made it to heaven. Or there was something good here. So these feather crowns are very prized. That's all over Appalachia. It's also down in the mid-state of Carolina. Um, I remember seeing feather crowns as a child. There's some traditional... Um, Amulets. Have you ever heard of whole stone? Do you know what yeah, that is? Yeah. That almost every powwow you'll ever meet will have a holy stone somewhere on their person, especially if they're doing their magic, because it's protective. That goes right across the pond to the belief that you know this is a uh, a protective amulet in which a 
negative spirit would become trapped. Kind of like a former yeah. bottle tree that you would see. That's right. another way of... Have you ever seen houses that had uh, the light blue paint on the windows and the doors? Paint blue? Paint blue, yes. That keeps the spirits uh, supposedly at bay. Keeps them out of the house because they don't like that, that blue. Now, which always was curious to me, if something can go through the wall, how is this going to really make a difference? But anyway. <laughs> there's well, part about of it. it. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, there. <laughs> each of these have also, each of the traditions are brought here and became hybridized with other traditions. Certainly, Hoodoo adopted Native American traditions. There is a tradition called the Cunning Man, Cunning Woman, from the British Isles. Are you familiar right. with that? Yeah, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what Orion talk, Foxwood talks about. Right, the Cunning People. They're still there. They still exist. Uh, they're not as prevalent as they once were, but the magic's the same. And the things that they do are the same. Um, it's not something, you know, there are many famous ones uh, uh, in the British Isles, but it really impacted the cunning, uh, the granny tradition of Appalachia, of course, because these are Scots-Irish people. These are English people. Yeah. That's why occasionally they'll find the Bellamans or witch bottles buried in the house or buried behind the house. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think It's a so. bottle with certain things in it, yes. It's the yeah. things like uh, uh, nails, pins, uh, urine, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sharp, pointy things and stuff, yeah. To, to Sharp, trap. pointy things, yes. A trap. It's right. a trap. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So the use of each one had its own peculiarities, uh, but they all did the, simply the same things. They all did contagious magic, which which is uh, where you will lay something down and a person comes in contact with it and becomes impregnated. It's not probably not a good word. Well, infused with the magic. Right. Uh, then you have sympathetic magic, which means a like produces like kind of thing. And that's your that's your witch bottle, or that's your poppet, that's yep. your charm. And most most folk magic people don't go past a very beginning stage of of doing little healings. There's always the little lady who can take the burn away from a burn or can stop the blood. Or, you know, the grandpa who can talk the ward away or cure the thrice from a baby. Thrice, yeah. That kind of stuff. But then it seems the dividing line is where you start to interact with spirits. Because that takes you out of normal consciousness in a way that the others do not. And you start going deeper and deeper into your subconscious mind. And you start encountering other things you become more aware of them um and i have to admit this did not come easy to me when i was no. first starting out i i struggled with it because i was trying to put everything 
first of all into a academic uh, box. I wanted to have a psychological explanation for everything that fit. And as time went on, I just kind of said, you know, I have to give this up. In fact, Lee said to me, he said, you're either going to have to understand and accept that your world's going to be different or you need to stop right now and go home. Finish your paper, turn it in, and be done with it. Unfortunately, I decided to, as they say, go native and just embrace it. And it's given me a great life, uh, a life I've never seen otherwise. It's kind of what led me to seek commonality with the pagan movement, is that a lot of these people, I think, were fundamentally trying to develop a form of mysticism, which folk magic is. It's a form of mystical practice. And I also saw paganism as often a form, an attempt to reawaken mysticism in our lives. Now, I came in associated with paganism through uh, the UU Church and the whole Cups movement. Okay. Right. That okay. So that's how that all got started. But I always kept my sort of my folk stuff in the back ground and I thought, well, I wonder if they'd ever accept this and it turned out they were gracious enough to accept it. And so I've done many, many lectures at many, many festivals over the years. I can't even tell you how many, to be honest with you. Um, but th- that's where that's where I I'm sorry, please. Yeah. Your question? Oh yes. Um have you seen an increase in people in pagan uh in pagan interest in powwow or hoodoo? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think what it is is people are looking for a more authentic uh connection to their own ancestry. And this is a part of all our ancestry. You know, there's there's not a single group that hasn't come over to the United States that didn't have some level of magical practice. Um, and in most of the countries, if you can get down beneath the surface, it's still there. I talked to a man from Austria who went with his grandmother every so many moons to feed the trolls at the waterfall. And you're thinking, I would love to have seen that ritual of feeding the trolls so that they didn't follow you home. This is in modern-day Austria. So, yes, I think people are looking for a, a more authentic, a more genuine experience. And I'm not saying that the other, that Gardnerian magic or Alexandrian magic or any of that ceremonial magic, none of that, I'm not saying that it isn't real. But some of it has its basis in a folk magic, in an animistic understanding of our environment, and an awareness that there's so much more than the everyday commercialized technological world will show us. Right, and... I think another thing that many pagans have a problem with is that people in America, people in the United States, have a mixed ethnic heritage and, as a result, Mm -hmm. a mixed cultural heritage. And 
We know this historically as people come to the United States, regardless of the country that they came from, they got rid of, consciously or unconsciously, their old ways. So they became, uh, what, uh, what's the word, assimilated. They assimilated yeah. into American culture, whatever that meant in the 1800s or the early 1900s or even into modern mm-hmm. times, that they assimilated. And so for many people, they lost that cultural That's identity. Yeah, but then also, as, as many people who are quote-unquote Caucasian or of European, some sort of European background, as they intermarried with other people, they didn't keep track of where they came from. They didn't keep track mm-hmm. of their mother or great-grandmother. So now you have a huge swath of Americans that really do not know their ethnic heritage. They don't know where exactly they came from. And That is true. Yeah, so you're, we're all searching. And, you know, doing stuff with Ancestry.com and that sort of thing can be helpful. Yeah. But then there's also these other practices that were unique to that particular culture, Germany versus Scotland versus Mm -hmm. Ireland versus places like uh, Lithuania, which Mm -hmm. their folk practices are still very much alive, and I think it is Lithuania that is not Christian at all. They're not Christian. Lithuania was, yeah. There are animistic groups in Lithuania. They are the uh, vector. If you want to look at them, I think it's uh, you can look at it YouTube. There's a uh, film of a ritual, and they call them the last pagans. Mm-hmm. The last, the original pagans. Uh, you know, many of us. For me, a lot of this became meaningful as I started to undercover my own personal connections. I discovered quite by accident. Well, not by accident. I was at. 1975 at a uh, family gathering for Thanksgiving and sitting there with my little German grandmother who was German heritage and um, people asked me what I was doing and I was trying to tell them they were laughing at me, making fun of me for studying such silly stuff and I looked over at grandmother and said, do you know what I'm talking about? And she looked at me and just didn't say a word, just winked and I don't think Uh I heard another thing Another thing, so I went over to her house after that, soon after, and I said, what was that about? She goes, my father, your great-grandfather, was a healer, as you're talking about, and he worked exclusively on animals. And he would lay his hands upon a horse that was supposed to be dead, and by the morning it was up and walking around. And I I thought, my God, this is a powwow, because powwows heal animals. Yep. So when people always talk to me and say, well, you know, doesn't the person have to believe in this? Mm, how does the horse believe? How does the dog believe? How does the infant believe? Sorry, not buying it. Something is happening here. You just don't have a comfortable explanation for it. But it is happening. Yeah. That's cool. Lee, Lee would, would would get a call over the phone when they were dehorning cattle. Because this was a rural area at that time. Right. And he, he'd say, okay, what was, when was it born? 
what's his name? And he began to mutter. Pretty soon, on the other end of the phone, you hear, thank you. And you hang the phone up. He got the blood to stop. And he could do it over the phone. <laughs> wow. And you're sitting there going, my world is so small, and I understand so little. <laughs> and no, I don't think he was. I don't think he had, he was doing that simply for my benefit. He had no real need to impress me. Um, and we are. I hate to. I hate to. See, we did it. We I did know it again. we did it. It's already almost ten after ten. So we oh, all I'm sorry. are only supposed to go on for an hour. Right. And as we got, I mean, there's some buffer time built into the whole system <laughs> and stuff, you know, for when we get wrapped up into something. But it's really, t- it's it's one of these conversations. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like, oh, it's after ten. And I re- I looked you up on Amazon, and it's the other reason why I did not buy the book, because I do like books made out of paper mm-hmm. rather than. The electronic what is this, one. The Kindle one available. The Kindle one is available. Oh, oh, I found another one though. I found another site that actually had the, the paper version. Oh, that was okay. Available, yeah. That's good because on Amazon Prime, uh, your book is a hundred nineteen dollars. What? Oh my. Good um, grief. That's <laughs> awful. It is. Um, I've got a batch. I'm. I'll sell you one for twenty. For goodness sakes. I'm not. I'm not. I'm good with that. Um. Well, uh, I'll send you an email after the show. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, don't pay all that kind of money. Goodness gracious. Oh, the funny thing is that there are a, f- a few that, holy crap, um, well, maybe it's an indicator that you, that people are, I don't know, interested or your book is like rather rare or something, um, not that you would get a kickback from this because... I mean, hope you're getting a good chunk out of that one. I know, right? But no, I'm not getting anything out of that one. <laughs> I know. That's just it. Um, <laughs> point what, zero, one zero. thing is, for one reason, the publisher went out of business. Oh, okay. Um, now, the reason I didn't go with a big-name publisher was because I didn't want my text to be brought down to the level of an eighth grade reader gotcha. and okay. therefore it i and i didn't want to take out the footnotes and i didn't want to take out the bibliography because i wanted people to research themselves and be able to say well, you know where's that come from oh that's this book i'll go look at that book you know i wanted people to kind of be able to to get more from it than just reading a memoir of this guy who wrote this book right uh, gotcha there's some good books out there. I, you know, if you ever want me to recommend, I'll be happy to. If you can find a copy of Lee Gandy's Strange Experience, um, Secrets of Hexenmeister, that thing, I've seen those for two, $300, and I'm going, wow, I got mine for free, and it's signed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, and there is, um, yeah, I just, yeah. there's just not. Yeah, I found it. Well, that one's also available on Amazon for uh, as low as fifty nine ninety five for used, no good. or thirteen for new. Um, Woo. For for Lee Gandy's book, yeah. So, love we'll to look around. Um, yeah. 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 
Okay. Okay. Well, listen, if you ever have a question or something like that, I'll be happy to try to answer it. You know, this we only truly got to scratch the surface this evening. Oh, I know. Of course. So, um, be prepared to get a call back from us so we can talk a little bit more, probably okay. to um, maybe have a narrowed-down focus on a few different topics. I think you are the first person we've had on that actually, because it's not very common, yep. that actually practices powwow. Right. So definitely, okay. yeah. 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 Always looking for new and different stuff, and this is very, I personally am fascinated by this. I'm very interested in this. So okay. uh, yeah, be prepared for a callback. Take a road trip. Sure. Take a road trip. Whatever I can, whatever I can do to help, I'm glad to do. And you're somewhere in west, western Kentucky. Kentucky? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like I say, me and Tony have been doing our, our rounds. We're going to do a, a workshop in Memphis. If you ever get down to that, I think we'll be doing that first after the first of the year. We we were in Atlanta during the summer. We that was a two day affair. Woo! That was tiring. But Wait, Byron was, that the was there. Fun? Dorothy was Marson that was fun? there. What was it? Called Mystic South. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was the one where uh, the hotel that the event was in was out of power. Or something had happened. Yeah, it went out of power. God, oh my God, the um, the heat went off. I mean, the air conditioning went off. And by mid afternoon, this poor hotel staff were just being driven crazy by these people who are getting angry with them, and it's like. All the 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 folks in our room, I said, Tony, we're not going to have any crowd the second day. And he and he said, Well, we'll get the real dedicated ones. And sure enough, we had about thirty sitting yeah. there. We're all just dripping sweat, but you know, we got through it. Right. You'll yeah. go through what you need to to do what you need to do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, New Orleans in the summer well, that was without. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, Atlanta. Same difference. It's, yeah. it's the deep yeah. south in the summer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not not. Have you been down time. to New Orleans? Have you been down to we New Orleans? Did Long time ago. Many moons ago, when David was still in the Navy, and that was fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a great place, and there are many magical folks down there. You have to kind of get through. Um, how do I say this? You kind of got to get through the um, uh, commercial aspect of it, but yeah, once right. you you know once you start to connect, there's some really cool people that you. Next time you go down there, let me give me a call and I'll tell you some folks to look up. There's, there's actually a voodoo tradition down there uh, that's very good, well managed. Uh, there's people like Sally Glassman. Does that ring a bell? No. She is a voodoo priestess, trained in Haiti, exceptionally uh, nice lady. Um, yeah. She might be somebody you'd want to interview, honestly. Glass? Sa- Sally Ann Glassman. Okay. And she runs she runs a botanica down there. Um, you have access to a lot of uh, videos. 
Look up something called Apprentice to Murder, starring Donald Sutherland. Okay. And that'll t- it's it's a it's a film, but it deals, and I didn't expect anything from it, but it deals with a very famous case where a man was murdered. Uh, powwow was murdered for his magical tools, and um, its pro- its portrayal of powwow is interesting because the movie shifts you in and out of shamanic consciousness, so that you're seeing what they see, not what the average person would see. Oh, and wow. it does that a couple of times in the film. It it's it never got any real play, and I remember when I sat down, I thought, oh, this is going to be such crap, and I was like. Holy cow, somebody did some homework here. This is actually good. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Did you ever see the skeleton key? Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's a fun yes. that's a fun film. Uh some of those shops are like real hoodoo shops, you know, the real ones that have all the real ingredients that would scare the crap out of you if you, you know, knew what most of it was for. But I and I didn't mean to start off in a negative sense, but I just I always feel like I need to make that point that this is not something to play with. This is not something to dally around with, especially if you get below the surface of it. Because it has a component that can really mess you up if you're not careful. Well, yeah, and it, yes, and in any sort of whatever the cultural context when you're talking about Hardcore magical practice. Yep. It does lend itself to that if you're going to be a serious magical practitioner. Whatever mm-hmm. particular path that you happen to be following, if you call it witchcraft or you're calling it something else, when you are working with magic in one way, shape, or another, and it's more than just help me pass my exam tomorrow. Because I say that I'm giving students a final exam tomorrow. You know, if it's anything beyond, yeah. Uh, I have had students, I've had some Muslim students write a prayer on top. There's a, they'll write it in oh. Arabic. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, uh, we'll yeah. see if it worked or not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. So, what do yeah. you teach? I teach well. You... I taught different things. I teach general biology, and I also teach environmental science at a community college up in our area up here. So mm-hmm. yeah, they have the final tomorrow morning. Bless their hearts. <laughs> Bless. <laughs> Bless our hearts. That's an old right, southernism. Well, we, we really do have to wrap up this time. It's ten okay. twenty up. So I know, I know. well, thank you very much for You're coming very on. This is My a pleasure. great. And we definitely want you to have you back on for more discussions about this. Yeah. Okay. Sure. No problem. All right. And y'all take care. Yeah. You do the same. And stay warm and toasty. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. It's cold where you're at. It's cold where we're at too. Welcome to winter. And we'd like to sing. Yeah. Uh, Witch School International for allowing us to come on every week and have two hours of really great programming. Right. 
We'd also like to thank Circle Circle Sanctuary for and Selena Fox for dragging us into this crazy world of Circle Radio Ministry. Yep. We've been doing this since 2011, 2012. 11? Yeah, so we've been Yes, it was. 11, 11, 11. It was 11, 11, 11. Yeah. Yes. So, and we'd like to thank everyone who listens now and who will be listening and downloading in the future. Right. And, yeah, again, just Thank you, Jack, for joining us and, and being here. It's great, been a great discussion, a great night. Um, I've learned a lot, and I know it's just a, a little bit that there is. Yeah. So, thank you so much. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. And so, what are we gonna? What are you gonna take us out with tonight, Dave? So, I'm kind of feeling it. Um, so we usually close out with a song by Subhour Rhythm, mm-hmm. but I think we were looking at the songs and stuff. We we played. John Barleycorn earlier, and because it, I don't know, the title of the song just kind of draws me to it, The Cold Rain and Snow, um, that you did, Jack, with uh, Water Sprite. Um, how many years ago was this? How many, when, did you, when was this recorded? Do you remember? I don't remember. and I, I think 2008, maybe. It was okay. recorded down okay. in Nashville. I remember doing it. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Good. <laughs> but, yeah, we, I had some wonderful help on that. Uh, and and I, the words are not the traditional, but um, I try to kind of made it into a little ghost story. Uh huh. Oh, nice. Okay. I think, we'll, cool. I think we'll close up with that tonight. Okay. Then. Cool. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Oh my God. Um. And the scroll just scrolled. But all we had was pain and strength. They put us out in the cold rain and snow. Rain and snow, rain and snow. Put us out in that cold rain and snow. With no way to make a stand, we set out Circles comes to see me every night.
comes floating up the stairs, combing back her yellow hair. She says, Johnny, come and go along with me. Along with me, along with me. She says, Johnny, come and go along with me. When I wake to greet the day, she has left and gone away. She has gone where the chilly winds don't blow. Winds don't blow, winds don't blow. She has gone where those chilly winds don't blow. Every night is Pagan's Tonight. 